bright. I was afraid we were going to be so bright you're going to have to put your sunglasses on. <laughs> and I will say, hello everybody. Hi there. On this chilly but sunny Monday. Yeah. Glad you're with us. We return to Isaiah today. We are going to begin at Isaiah chapter 8 today. Verse 1. See, we're verse moving along. Verse 8. Chapter eight, verse chapter eight, one. verse one. Yeah, whatever. I'm gonna I'm gonna put that in in a little bit because yeah. Andy isn't already on. Andy. No, Andy is on. Oh, good. Andy, He's already here. Isn't that Andy, amazing? You you got that then. <laughs> chapter eight. Andy's verse on time one. today. But I usually try to put it somewhere in the middle because yeah, um, often sure. people, you know, they're sure people are signing on all the time. Right. I just want to be Sometimes sure they know where we are. Sometimes Facebook bounces them off. That's true. And they have to come back. So uh, anytime, ask where uh, we are at, and we're, we're glad we're happy to let to tell you know. You. So, let's see. I see you have on your shirt tonight that are kind of Mavericks colors. Yeah, because we're going to the Mavericks game tonight. And that's why I have a black t-shirt on. Cool. That's the closest thing I have. Well, but I, sort of I wore have kind a blue of, I thought jacket. this would do. Yeah. 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 The blue jacket yeah. to wear yeah. over. We're getting one of our Christmas gifts tonight yeah. from son Matt to get to go yeah, with Yeah, Matt's going to come with his family, pick us up. We're all going to go down to the game together. Cool. Matt's driving. We love that. <laughs> <laughs> He's going to pick us up. I told him that. Matt's practically the best part of the deal right there. Yeah. He's going to do all the driving. Yep. And he said he knows where to park. Because they go down there all the time now. Yeah. And stuff. So, cool. So good. Awesome. Very so, good. wasn't it something doing communion yesterday? It was. For it those was. of you who don't know, at the 930 service, we did communion as we did it pre-pandemic. We did and by intention, we all gathered, we served. It was really just wonderful. And the shocking thing to me was, after we finished and I sat down, I didn't feel like it had been two no. years no, it didn't since feel we had way. done it. it but didn't. it had been. It had been. Two yeah. years. I noticed they gave us an extra big <clears throat> glob of hand sanitizer, just so that everybody would feel especially right. <laughs> Yeah, but I think everybody's feeling feeling I, a lot I better these too. days. I, do I really too. do. So, so. Um, yeah. So, anyway, we're just so glad you're here. It's such, like we said, just such weird weather. I think last Monday afternoon it was quite a bit warmer. Wake up this morning and it's thirty something degrees. It was just, and it's only like forty five now or something. Yeah, and it's supposed to be thirty three in Frisco tonight. Crazy, crazy. So you know who tells me? Her. Whose name cannot be said. Yes. You know who I mean. I do. Yes. It's spelled A-L-E-X-A. Yeah, she'll pipe up and try to join in the conversation here. So (laughs) So anyway, okay. Well, what what else you got for us today? I think that's it. I think we should just open in prayer and get, get going. Okay. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are grateful that we have the opportunity to gather in this way and And I guess in these days we are especially appreciative of the fact that we can gather and we can do so in peace and in freedom um, with uh, the the state of the world and the war in Europe. And we just just pray your hand of peace and your hand of justice and mercy will be on us and be on the Ukrainians um, as we uh, strive to find our way forward. And we pray that your spirit will move among us here today and as we return to Isaiah and help to open up these sometimes pretty opaque writings so that we can we can we can hear your word come to us from this great prophet. 
All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Okay. Going on the other side here. Okay. So that's your Mavericks black t-shirt, huh? Yeah, because I have like this little like sweatshirt jacket that's the dark blue. Yes. Oh, yes. You're going to be Miss Mavericks. They're going to come down and want you to join the cheer squad down on the court. Oh, yeah. Sure. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. my funny husband. Yeah, we have fun. Yeah. You know, if you can't, what are you doing? Wow. Okay. So here is where we are starting. Chapter 8, verse 1. <laughs> Not the reverse. Chapter 8, verse 1. And I'll just give a little bit of where we've been. Of course, this is we're very much embedded in the section of Isaiah about the impending um, invasion uh, from by Assyria into the northern kingdom, and certainly everybody expects the southern kingdom. And so let me just put up a slide here about that. Um, So here are the two kingdoms, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. They're both Israelite. There's just two kingdoms. And the story of that goes back a couple hundred years. And arrayed all to the north is the great Assyrian Empire. And they begin making incursions um, into, for example, the area we we, we know as Galilee, as early as 735, and in 722, they overrun the northern kingdom, and everybody in the south thinks the world is about to fall in on them as well. And if we go back to week one, Isaiah is a prophet in, in Judah, but he's talking a lot about the kingdom of Israel because they are the ones under the most immediate threat. But when we come to these portions where God is talking to the northern kingdom, we shouldn't imagine that he's not also talking to the southern kingdom. You know, because yes, the southern kingdom is going to get a reprieve. It will be the Babylonians who consume them about 150 years later. Um, But it's just a reprieve. That's all it is. It's just a it's just a, a delay, really, is, is maybe a better way to put it. And because as a people, as the people of God, they have Northern Kingdom and Southern Kingdom alike, they have not lived as God taught them to live, as God wanted them to live, and they are going to reap the consequences of that. The Northern Kingdom first and later the southern kingdom. So, and, but Isaiah also brings promises from God about about a future, about a king who would come and would be Emmanuel, who would be God with us, which is what Emmanuel means. And we saw in chapter 7 that there was this famous verse that everybody knows that Matthew uses about, you know, a virgin, a a virgin, a virgin shall bear a son, right? So, so that is always there. It, it, It is the way of the prophets because it is God's way that even as God is being so direct and honest with his people about the wreckage they are making of their lives 
and their and their and their nation God God is going God is going to rescue them maybe not those immediate people um, at the time but yes there's always this promise of hope and restoration because that's who God is God is the God of hope God is the God of hope of God is the God of restoration of renewal so that's always out there and and we will see that again today we'll see that again today as Isaiah is talking about what is about to happen and continuing to push remember the the immediate question is why does the king um, of the of of Israel seek a treaty with Assyria when these this big empire which would be the world's way yes that'd be the world's way seek this treaty seek you know get under their protection as opposed to turning to god right it's a little bit like the story i i told in my sunday school class yesterday at 11 o'clock the story from from first kings second kings chapter one where the king falls through the ceiling in his palace and sends his messengers to ask a pagan god, Beelzebub, whether he will recover or not. And 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 God sends Elijah to confront him, to say, why why do you go to a pagan god? Is there not the true God in Israel? Well, of course, there's there's the true God of Israel. So a real a real touchstone. Um, uh, a real touchstone verse in this is go back and just just I like these little touchstone moments in Isaiah. They're so easily remembered. Isaiah chapter seven verse nine. Isaiah Isaiah chapter seven verse nine. If you do not stand firm in your faith in God, you will not stand at all. Simple, straightforward. If you do not stand firm in your trust in God, then you will not stand at all. That is the basic message of all of this. Okay? So, and sometimes the prophets in the course of this are asked to do certain things. Okay? That, that's what Isaiah is going to be told to do here. So let's go, to, go, go on to chapter 8, verse 1. We'll, we'll pick up right there. So, Scott, I just noticed we have a lot of great people online today. A lot of our friends and so glad. Hey, everybody. And. Yes. My brother from another mother, Tony Fahimi. Really? Yay, yes. Tony. Brother from another mother. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. That's awesome. We're glad everybody's here today. For this, this Isaiah. And you're going to, you're going to really be, be be particularly glad when we get to uh, the beginning of chapter 9. Okay, so chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord said to me, you'll see it's got the funny little small caps Lord, Yahweh said to me, that's what it is in the Hebrew scholar, it's the name of God. Yahweh said to me, the NIV doesn't really get this right, take a large tablet and write on it with an ordinary pen. It, it, 
it, it's probably, you know, the NRSV uses tablet. Most of the commentators think the Hebrew word is better understood as a big tablet. So what would they use? We have some of, we have found some of this sort of thing. They'll have a big wooden tablet and it would be covered in wax and then people would, would write on it with a stylus so that it could be posted, right? And, but then come back and change later. Standard, Romans used it, everybody used it in the ancient world. It was a, an efficient way to, to do things. So this is, this is a public idea, I think, is whether it's large scroll or large tablet, the idea it's a public, it's a public thing that God is gonna tell him to do. So God says, take this large scroll or this large tablet, and here's what I want you to write on it. Meher shalal hashbaz. Wow. Mouthful. Here's what it means. <laughs> Meher shalal hash, hashbaz. Swift to come as a spoil, speedy as the prey. It's a way of saying this is all happening fast, fast, fast. You may think you're talking about something that's going to befall you in a very distant future, but no, no, no. Speedy haste. Those are the key words. Your, your, your Bible might have a different, a little bit different rendering down at the bottom of the page, but that's the idea. Speed, haste. So he's going to, he's to write this on this big tablet. So then, verse 2, so I called in, this is Isaiah speaking, I called in Uriah the priest and Zechariah, son of Jeberechiah, as reliable witnesses for me. Okay, so they, I guess they're witnessing this document or something. And then Isaiah says, then I made love to the prophetess. What? Okay, so who is that? No reason to think it isn't Mrs. Isaiah. Okay? That's Mrs. Isaiah. <laughs> <laughs> it's his wife. He may so so then he, he, he then he goes and he has sex with his wife. Because this is about their children. Okay, that that's this it, it's an enacted prophecy kind of thing. It's it's an enactment of of, of the kind of, of action that God wants from Isaiah. And in this case, you know, he makes out a good bit better than some of the stuff Jeremiah is asked to do. So he then um, has sex, has, makes love to the prophetess, to his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to a son, nine months, right? And Yahweh said to me, name him Mahershalal Hashbaz. which is quite the name, quite the moniker to put on a kid. I wonder what of that they called him as his little useful family household nickname. Mahershalal Hashbaz. For before the boy knows how to say, my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria or brought before the king of Assyria. So... You know, it's it's close. It's going to happen. Don't think it's 50 years down the road. It, it's hard to spur people to action, isn't it? Look at what's happening between Russia and Ukraine. 
Putin piled all these 200,000 soldiers and all the tanks and everything else all arrayed around the entire border of Ukraine, and people still didn't think he would actually invade Ukraine. The Ukrainians didn't think he would actually do it. But he did. And the word of God for the northern kingdom of Israel here is, ah, it's right here, it's on your doorstep before this little child can even say, my mother, my father. All of your wealth and plunder will be carried off and taken back to Assyria. Yahweh spoke to me again, verse 5. Because this people, and this is really, this is kind of, this is focused on Jerusalem here. Right? Remember, Isaiah, yes, seems so much of the time to be focused on the north. They're the first ones to fall, but really it's both. Because, and I'll, I say this, you'll, you'll see in a second. Because this people has rejected the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Those were waters that came from the springs of Gihon and were a big and important source of drinking water for Jerusalem. And it's a way of saying that the people have rejected the calm and gentle peace that God offers them. And they rejoice over Rezin, the king of Aram, and the son of Romalia. Therefore the Lord is about to bring against them the mighty floodwaters of the Euphrates. In a reference to Assyria again, the king of Assyria, with all his pomp and his circumstance and his armies and his wealth and his royal robes, all of that is going to fall in. It's just going to wash in like, like floodwaters. It will overflow all its channels. It will run over all its banks. Just remember that what we're talking about, what's going to happen is that when the Assyrians finish overrunning the northern kingdom, it will be gone. And the ten tribes of Israel, going back to ten sons of Jacob, those ten tribes of Israel will become known as the lost tribes of Israel because they will never be reconstituted as a nation, as a kingdom, as God's people. They will, for all intents and purposes, just be gone. Floodwaters will wash over them and they will just be, they will just be gone. It will overflow all its channels, run over all its banks, and sweep on into Judah, swirling over, passing through it, reaching up to the neck. Its outspread wings will cover the breadth of your land, Emmanuel. There's that word, Emmanuel, again. Of your land, Emmanuel. So it's Emmanuel's land. What does Isaiah see? What does he think? Who is Emmanuel? Is Emmanuel just a word for the present king? Or is Isaiah seeing something else further? Does he really even grasp how what this prophecy 
and who this prophecy is pointing toward. Right? We, we don't know. We can't read the mind of Isaiah. Ray, verse 9. Raise the war cry, you nations, and be shattered. Listen, all you distant lands. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Prepare for battle and be shattered. Devise your strategy, but it will be thwarted. Propose your plan, but it will not stand for God is with us. So verses 9 and 10 are of a different voice. It, it's as if Isaiah is now speaking to all the nations arrayed against Israel. Prepare for battle, sure, but you're going to be shattered. Why? Because God is with us. And it's true that, sure, the northern kingdom was swept away. It's true, yes, that the southern kingdom will be swept away, you know, a century and a half later. But God's victory, God's victory over even sin and death still lies ahead. Still lies ahead. God is with us. That is, that is what Emmanuel means. Emmanuel means God with us. So for me, you know, it, I sort of get the co historical context for this, and it's important to know, but, but my eyes keep getting pulled upward and forward, upward and forward, thinking about what is Isaiah doing? What is, he, what is, God, what is God giving Isaiah to see and to speak and to write? Verse 11, this is what Yahweh says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Okay, so now we're shifting again. Now the point is going to become a warning to Isaiah that as the people are running away from God and not being the people of justice and mercy and kindness and love that they should be, that Isaiah is not is not to follow. Isaiah is to follow God. He's not to follow these people because they are they are running themselves like like I don't know lemming. I'm not sure what a lemming even even is. Lemmings off a cliff. So here, here's what he says to Isaiah: Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. In other words, the people, you see there, there's all this talk, and we need to align ourselves with Assyria and all this kind of stuff, and they're living fear and dread and making their calculations about the king of Aram and the king of Assyria and all that kind of stuff, and God is saying to Isaiah, Isaiah, get out of that. Get out of that. They don't, they don't comprehend who they should fear. What, who, go back to that earlier verse. It stuck with, has stuck with me from Isaiah chapter 6. They call evil good and good evil. They call light darkness and darkness light. They call sweet bitter and bitter sweet. Don't, don't listen to them, Isaiah. Don't get caught up in this, Isaiah. 
the, verse 13, the Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear, which means to stand in awe of. He is the one you are to dread, because he is mighty. Put yourself under God's mighty hand. And mighty it is, not under the Assyrian king. Those guys come and go. Come and go, come and go. Verse 14, he, God, will be a holy place for both Israel and Judah. He will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. How could that be? The same thing is said about Jesus. Paul uses this phrase in uh, 1 Corinthians, I think it is. Because you see, they won't they won't they won't live in God's ways. That's the problem. They will end up on the other side, rather than God's side. It's the way the Pharisees and the opponents of Paul and they would end up on the other side, not in Jesus's way. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. And, and go back to verse, verse 11. That, that is what tells you what the next um, several verses are about. Warning me not to follow the way of this people. They're God's people, yes. But don't follow their way. They're, they're walking into traps that they set for themselves. You're, you don't want to get caught up in that. It's such a difficult thing to do, isn't it? Not to get caught up in it? Not to, not to follow the crowd? To stand apart? Right? It is. We can talk about it in personal ways in people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of that kind of pressure falls on teenagers a lot. Who you know, end up getting pulled into things they never would have done on their own. And they, because it's just hard for them to walk away. It's so important to them to be accepted. The same thing can happen to adults. You can be so hard to walk a separate path. That's why, <laughs> did you hear me say it, for the five thousandth time there is no healthy relationship with Jesus without a relationship with his church because if you are going to walk in God's way it is so much better to find some people who are striving to walk it with you so and in the immortal words of Rogers and Hammerstein so you'll never walk alone I don't know where that reference came from, but it just popped into my brain. So, that's the idea, right? Don't, don't follow him, Isaiah. And then he says at verse 16, he's speaking to Isaiah, bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. Okay? This stuff will be written down and it will be read and it will be passed on. It will become a written testimony about who God is and who we are. And that is 
and and the Jewish people came to accept these writings as sacred and inspired in a way other writings simply aren't. And the same is true for, for Christians. Isaiah is sacred scripture. The 66 books of the Bible are sacred scripture, written down, bound up, sealed, given to us, so that we ourselves can hear God's word. You don't have to go to a mountaintop striving, striving to hear God's word so you know what you might do with your life. No, that's not our way. Our way is pick up this library that's conveniently bound inside two covers and let the word of God between these two covers in this vast library of diverse writings shape your understanding of who you are and and in there you will find the purpose that you seek. You don't have to go to the some distant mountaintop mountaintop to do it. People just don't like I mean when I say that it just seems like what? Like like that's like too easy. What do you mean I just I don't have to, you know, disappear somewhere into some kind of sweat lodge or something else for six months to No, you don't. No. And the beauty of it is, this word, we interpret it, we, we all, every generation has to come to it a, a little bit afresh. We have lots of Christians who have come before us that we, who, that we lean on, but the words on the page are the words on the page. The words on the page are the words on the page, and they don't change. So, Verse 16, bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. Why is God's hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob? Because they have left God. Not because God's gone anywhere. They have left God. The chasm is vast. And the Isaiah's last words in verse 17, I will put my trust in him. Another simple phrase. I will put my trust in him. Remember that verse from chapter 7? Stand firm in your faith. You won't stand. I will put my trust in him. It's a simple message. So hard. So hard for us. We are battered by people who want us to put our trust in them. When the truth is, in the end, only God is fully deserving of our trust. I will put my trust in, in him. Here am I, and the children Yahweh has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel. From Yahweh Almighty, from Yahweh Sabaoth, who dwells on Mount Zion. Now 
There are signs and symbols in the land. Signs and symbols of what? What do you think they're signs and symbols of? Well, you if they're living their right their lives right, they're uh, they're witnesses. They're witnesses. They are signs and symbols of faith. Isaiah and his family are going to stay true to God, right? Absolutely. Um, I will put my trust in Him. We are signs and symbols of what? Putting our trust in God. I don't think you have to be any more any more mysterious than that. It is for me. It links up with the. Um, when Jesus tells us, his disciples to go out and be witnesses to Jesus um, in Acts 1 to Ju Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, right? right. The, this idea that, yes, we, we Christians, we are witnesses to Christ. It would be probably helpful if all of us had a little, a little light above our head that said Christian. So that people would see. And hopefully then we would be further spurred to live the life that God hopes for us to live. A life of, characterized by kindness and compassion, gentleness and the rest. So, okay. Yeah, the problem with that, though, <laughs> is, is that what? we don't always set that great example. And, you know, you and I have been driving down the road and had too many people with, you know, the little fish or something on the back of their car <laughs> as they are cutting in and out and flipping people off. And it's, you kind of go, really? Really? And you, you know, really? you just really yes. try hard not so? to do it yourself when, you know, um, yeah. But you can't be a witness to Christ unless people know that you are a Christian. Was that? Do you think that's true? You can lead a Christian life anonymously, but can you be a witness to Jesus to others if they don't know that you're a Christian? Now, hopefully, you're going to be living in a way that people are going to see something in you that they would like to have in their own life. And... If you haven't told them, they're going to inquire, what, what sets what you, you apart? Why are you so happy all the time, even when things are crud or whatever? You know, that they're going to, they're going to inquire as to where do you get this, you know, this inner, right. inner strength and faith but, from. Yeah. So, but here, there, it's Isaiah and his family. They are signs and symbols. And here this poor child has a name, quick to, <laughs> quick to blunder and swift to spill. Oh, here's our son. We call him Quick Swift for short. Yeah, that's... That is quite a, yeah, quite a name. Not a great quite name. Quite a name. Yeah. So here we go. Verse 19. Again, I'm thinking of my, I guess my, my class at 11 o'clock yesterday was fairly, I didn't realize how forward-looking it was. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? This is part of a long string of scripture which calls the people away from the occult, spiritual readings, reading handprints, all these ways you might ask 
next. I don't know who. The universe. The tarot cards. Whatever, whatever, whatever. To whom do we turn? As God's people, we turn to God. We don't turn to mediums, crystal balls, tarot cards, anything like that. Astrology, any of that. The, the problem with it isn't that it's just, you know, kind of silly. The problem with it is it can wire, can be subtly wire your brain away from God. Enough of the world does that. Enough of the world pulls us away from God. It's trying to rewire our brain all the time into the world's ways. So the last thing we need to do is add to it by consulting mediums and spiritists, as the NIV puts it. Well, this is kind of like ripped from the headlines because I woke up this morning and it was one of really? the topics on the news this morning. Remember that this, these spiritualist kind of people felt that something terrible was going to happen and they were not going to be able to have ads anymore, right, on Facebook and Weren't you standing out there? When you I saw guess that? I was probably yeah. I was probably tuned it out. They were, yeah, they were all up in a titter really? that yes, they were going to be banned from social media. But oh, it was all it was all fake news. The tarot card reading can go on, huh? <laughs> well, mediums and yes, yeah, spiritualists well, and I'm I'm just saying this is a this is a standard biblical theme, and you're you're not going to find. A place in Scripture that that says, "Oh no, no, go see the go see the spiritist or the medium or get your cards read or whatever," rather than turning to God. Nope, the constant refrain is "Turn to God, turn to God, turn to God." Of course, of course, of course. <laughs> Look at the second last part of verse nineteen. Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? I just thought of the movie Ghost with Whoopi Goldberg, right? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Don't. Just don't. And of course, we live in a very modern, you know, evidence-based world filled with science, I guess. That word has been used only about a gajillion times in the last two years. But in for the ancients, you see, in Isaiah's world, there is just the thinnest of veils in everybody's mind between what they're living in the, in the moment, what they're touching and seeing, and the other side of that veil. A world filled with, maybe we might call them angels or demons or fairies and goblins and, and, and trolls and spirits and the things that go bump in the night. And so... And so, remember, and remember that that um, King Saul even resorts to going to the witch at Endor to seek his future. Yeah, just just one more of Saul's mistakes. Verse twenty: Consult God's instruction and the testimony of warning. So. Um, Look, look up at verse 16. 
Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. Now down to verse 20. Consult God's instruction in the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Right? They're still in the darkness. That's, that's a way to, to think about that. They're still in the darkness. The light hasn't moved. They haven't moved into the light, into the sunrise. So, you can look at this phrase and, and a verse and <laughs> countless others across Scripture to understand why um, Christians and Jews before us have been so committed to the authority of Scripture. Not that, not that we simply can open the Bible anywhere and find all the answers to everything we want, but Scripture is this place we start with these things, and it's Scripture that keeps us grounded and anchored, and, and we have to work with one another to make sure that we don't drift too far away from the clear meaning, the clear sense of, of God's Word. Verse 21, Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. These are the ones who cut themselves off from God's word. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king. They will curse their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fill for gloom and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Utter bleakness. Sounds like the Batman movie. So, um, which we saw this weekend. So, what what's verse twenty two paint? What what is that a portrait of? Verse twenty two. As we're thinking about this stuff, you know, we can we don't have to rely on, you know, learned theologians for all of this. What's verse twenty two about? What's that a portrait of? Uh, verse twenty one and twenty two are a portrait of a life without God. When you, when you think, ah, oh, I can do all this. I've got this within myself. What's going to happen with the result of that? They'll be distressed and hungry, and they'll roam through the land. They're going to be famished. They, won't, they can't ever be satisfied. I have over here on my extremely messy table top the current issue of The Atlantic. The cover story is given over to a current book by Arthur Brooks about wanting less. By which he means you can chase, chase, chase in life, but most of the stuff we chase will never satisfy you. And you, are, you will want, 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 and it will never be satisfied, and you will never be content in life. And you will end up depressed and sad, and I just can't tell you how many people I know like that, how many people you meet like that, how many, it's just... It's just endemic to so much of humanity. Because the truth is, if you want to walk in the light, you need to turn toward God. There's no other way. Just no other way. So, who wants to be thrust into utter darkness? Who wants to live in utter darkness? We don't want to live in darkness. We want to live in the light. 
And that light is God's light. So, you have anything to add there, Patty? Nope. I agree with everything you said. Well, that is super. <laughs> okay. So, now we go on to Isaiah 9. And the first seven verses are these famous verses about Emmanuel. And we're going to read them, and we're going to go to Matthew and see how Matthew uses this and to sort of drive home the fact that, yes, we are reading writings that are from 700 years before Jesus. But Jesus' image is like the, I don't know what, like the watermark on the page, maybe? It's Jesus who is the fulfillment of what Isaiah sees, of what Isaiah hears. He is, he is the ultimate fulfillment of what people need, of, of where this story of God and his people um, is going. So, we'll just read maybe the, the we'll, read, we'll read the first two verses, and then we'll go to Matthew, and then we'll come back. Here is the message of hope. Remember what the prophets do. They bring the straightforward declaration of the consequences of your actions. And it's not good. But then they bring these messages of hope because you see God is love and mercy and relentless in his pursuit of his people and his desire for his people to be renewed and restored and reconciled to a right relationship with God. So verse 9 begins this, chapter 9 begins this way. Nevertheless, remember the last words of, let's go back, let's read it, let's read on this way. Go back to the end of chapter 8 in your Bibles. And let's read 21, 22, and let's go right on then into chapter 9 without me interrupting it. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land when they are famished. They'll become enraged and looking upward will curse their king. They'll curse their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into outer darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. You see, God gets the last word, right? God, that, that's the glory of Revelation 21 and 22. God gets the last word, and it's a word of hope fulfilled. Nevertheless, there'll be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations. By the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And you're wondering, Isaiah's writing, what is he thinking about? Does he even, he clearly knows this is a message of hope. 
as the dark clouds are rolling in across the land from Assyria. These are powerful words of hope, words of redemption and restoration. Well, I will, let's go to Matthew chapter 4, verse 14, and we'll see how Matthew interprets this. Four fourteen, four twelve. Matthew chapter four verse twelve. I'll give you a second to get there. I'll try not to hum along as we're okay. All right. Chapter four verse twelve. When Jesus heard that John, this would be John the baptizer, had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, because it hits him hard. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake, the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. And then Matthew writes, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Verse 15, The land of Zebulun and the land of Nestali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Right? So now we see that, that Matthew was led to, to, to see the Isaiah passage as a passage all about the nations of the world. That Jesus is not just a Jewish thing. It's about the Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Wow. And from that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of God has come near. You see, so so Matthew understands that these prophecies, this, these portraits brought by Isaiah 700 years before, they have been pointing toward the fulfillment in Jesus. He is the fulfillment of these 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 prophecies. And indeed, it is not merely for the benefit of Matthew and his fellow Jews. It is for the benefit of the whole world. All the peoples that walk in darkness will be brought into the light. A new light has dawned for them, and that light is Christ. For he is, Gospel of John, the light of the world. It stirs my soul, I have to say, to contemplate these things. It's just, it's just, it's just amazing. I wonder if some, if that was something that Jesus pointed out to them, to his disciples, or if this is something they would have just been able to see on their own. I think they were blind to a lot when during Jesus's ministry, when every day is a get up, eat something on your way, here's the crowds, oh my gosh, what are we doing now? There's the Pharisees. But after Jesus's resurrection, 
they have time to remember and to reflect. And I think it's then that they begin to grasp truly. Uh, they begin to like, what, what do we call it? We call it connecting the dots. Connecting the dots That's yes. when they begin to connect all these dots. And I, I don't know. In my imagination, I see them all sitting around a room or sitting around a campfire and they're sharing stories about Jesus and others of them are quoting scripture and they're weaving this together bit by bit by bit by bit. And so when Matthew opens this this gospel that he writes, and he writes it like, I don't know, well, I do know something, <laughs> 50 years or so after Jesus' death and resurrection, he, be, he begins with the genealogy, and then he moves to the story of Joseph, which, and, which is really what Matthew's story is about. And there are, just in the first chapter alone, like five prophecy fulfillments. And I remember for a long time thinking, well, that was all just, okay, there's, there's, there's one more reason to think Jesus was this. There's a second, third, fourth. No, you see, that's not it. What Matthew wants is for people to grasp, for his fellow Jews to grasp, that the hope that was in their hearts, fed by the, the like Isaiah chapter 8, or now in Isaiah chapter 9 in particular, that those were fulfilled in Jesus. It's a larger point than, than tick marks, right? Fulfillment number one, two, three, four, five. That, that's, that's, that's too... What did we use the word now? It's too granular. It's bigger than that. Jesus is the fulfillment of the light that God showed Isaiah. Would Isaiah know who that light is? No, well, Isaiah couldn't know that. Could Isaiah know that God is relentless in his love and mercy? Yes. yes. You see, Isaiah could know that. Would Isaiah be surprised? by this light that God showed him. I don't think so. Because like Moses, Isaiah knows who God is. So, anyway, okay. So let's go back to chapter 9. So I'm, I'm going to go right back to the first verse. We just Nothing wrong with hearing this again. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. Who are the who who are the those? This is humanity we're talking about. This is not just the fellow Jews, as evidenced by the next part here. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun, Jewish, yes, the land of Nestali, Jewish, yes, but in the future he will honor what? Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And that's why Matthew calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. Same idea, different words. You see, it's all peoples. It's all peoples. Jesus is not merely Jewish Messiah. He is Savior of the world. Savior of the world. And so in verse 2, who are these people? This, these people are humanity that whom God loves. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. The, 
the light of Christ is dawn for the whole world. Some may turn away and walk away from the sunrise. But the sunrise is for everybody. God so loved the world that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 3, you have enlarged the nation. You have increased their joy. You've enlarged the nation. You're, you're, you're pulling everybody into the people of God. You've increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. As warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. <laughs> For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. God is the bringer of peace throughout. He is the breaker of oppression. What Putin is doing in Ukraine is offensive to God, is more offensive to God than we can express in words. It is, it is the antithesis. In it, in it, Putin is being an antichrist. In your prior, people have this idea that the New Testament has all this stuff about like the capital T, capital A, antichrist. No, it doesn't. In Revelation, it's, and in John, it's antichrists, plural, which are just people who work against Christ and his, and his way. But the way of God releases the yoke that burdens them. That's like an ox carries. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fueled for the fire. Another dramatic way to say that every sword will be beaten into a plowshare and every spear into a pruning hook, right? exactly what it is. Yeah, you won't need them anymore. You won't need them anymore. Why? Because for to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. Right? It's one of the most wonderful passages of the Bible. One of the most wonderful... <laughs> Sorry. That's okay. Sorry. She'll finish in a second. Okay. <laughs> I should remember to unplug her. It, we're talking about the obviously she who cannot be named. So, did, ha, listen to Handel's Messiah. Just this one portion. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It is just oh, stirs the soul. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Isaiah brings to the people and a word of a day that they, that they can't really even imagine. And perhaps along the way, they made the they made the mistake of seeing it fulfilled. 
now and then and then and now. But the truth of it is, as Matthew says, it is fulfilled in Christ. Verse 7, of the greatness of his government, this Prince of Peace, this mighty God, this wonderful counselor, this ever, of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with what? With justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And, and how will this be done? The zeal of the, of the Lord Almighty, the zeal of Yahweh Sabaoth, will accomplish this. Zeal is a is a almost a feverish determination to accomplish some end, some goal. That's that's what God's love is. It's, it's almost a feverish determination to accomplish the renewal of this world and the reconciliation of humanity with God. And to bring peace and justice and righteousness that won't end. That won't end. We'll get further when we get much, much further into Isaiah. We'll come to the portions that are used in Isaiah. Um, I mean, in Revelation 21 and 22. But for now, this is the same idea. This is right. Is this not a world put right? This is a world put right. This is a world I don't want to live in. Putin probably doesn't. He doesn't want to live in a world like this because he wouldn't be the boss. I want, I want to live here. I suspect you'd like to live here. The Ukrainians sure would like to live here. So, let's go back to verse... This is just such an important section, Isaiah 9, verses 1 to 7. Let's just go back to verse 5 and hear it again. And we're going to start with the, you see, the end of war. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment rolled in blood, will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. And the government, see, the responsibility, that's what a government ha is, the responsibility will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. I love that. God's zeal for this. His determination to, 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 to bring the world and humanity to put it right, to put it right, 
There's so much wrong in this world. Right now it's being thrust in our faces every day. The wrong in this world. And what God wants to do is to put this world right and establish a world of justice and righteousness. Okay? So any thoughts about that, Patty? Any questions from anybody that I can help with? I see I see Cora came on. Hi Cora. Hi Cora. I'll be honest, I was just very surprised that I'm sure I knew this, but I was just very surprised that that's where we found this, you know, all these names of God that we see at St. Andrew when they come in with the banners, you know, at, at certain holidays and the wonderful counselor and mighty God and, you know, Prince of Peace and all the names of God. I just, it, it just surprised me when it jumped out like that. I didn't you know, know it was right here. I believe, you know, and Handel's Messiah, Handel wrote the music, but he wrote music to be, to, to go to the words compiled by somebody else. And I think his name was Charles Jennings. Maybe one of you know specifically, or we'll look it up in Wikipedia in the next 15 seconds. <laughs> right? We know how that goes. Susan may know. Yeah. So, and so what, so what Jennings was a, a famous librettist of his day, and he had pulled together other oratorios besides Messiah. But in this one, it's Messiah. And so he begins by going through Scripture and pulling together these messianic passages. Right? And this is one of them. Because a Christian could not read this and not see Jesus. No. no, you <laughs> It's impossible. Right. You know, it's one of those things where you ask yourself, well, gosh, let's just say, let's just say you're Jewish and you, you read this and you don't see Jesus. Well, I guess you see a promise yet unfilled, uh, yet unfulfilled. I guess. I don't know. It's a, it's a good question. Because for a Christian, of course we're going to, for unto us a son is born, the son is given. Of course we do. So it's called a messianic passage because Messiah is a royal term means the anointed one. A royal term, look at verse 7, he will reign on David's throne and over the kingdom. That's a, that's a whole messianic bunch of stuff right, right in there. right? But it's not just for the Jews. It's not just a Jewish throne. Because, as I said earlier, it's been enlarged to bring in the Gentiles, the Galilee of the Gentiles, those beyond the Jordan River. It's marvelous stuff. Marvelous So, but now, as happens on these scrolls, we'll just get a little ways into this. We turn back to the problem of Israel and dot, 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 and of Judah. So, yes, this is going to be written against the northern kingdom of Israel, but we shouldn't imagine that these words should, we should imagine that these words should be heard by the people of Judah in the southern kingdom. Verse 8, the Lord has set, sent a message against Jacob. That's the clue. Against Jacob. Jacob is the father of the twelve tribes. 
They may live in two different kingdoms now, but there were 12 tribes. The Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. That's the northern tribe, the northern kingdom. All the people will know it. Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, northern kingdom, who say with pride and arrogance of heart, well, yeah, I'm going to... I'm going to paraphrase a bit here, Patty, okay? Yes. Yeah, you know, sure. The bricks have fallen down, but we're going to rebuild with dressed stone. Sure, the fig trees have been filled, but we, we are really capable people. We're going to replace them with cedars. But Yahweh has strengthened Rezin's forces against them and has spurred their enemies on. Arameans from the east Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. His hand is lifted up as you could, um, is raised up might be another way to, to read this. It's like four times, I think, in this section, God's hand is upraised. But the people have not returned to him. The people have not returned to God who struck them, nor have they sought out the Lord Almighty. They won't repent. Maybe we'll finish with this thought and finish up here. This is, this is what, what, what is the book of Revelation about? Okay, so many people don't get the book of Revelation at all. The book of Revelation is in it what happens is once you get past the initial opening letters you get these these uh, frightful frightfulness after frightfulness after frightfulness where falls on the people of the earth and do they repent patty they do not they do not <laughs> repent <laughs> and it's explicitly said they don't repent they don't repent they don't repent they don't repent and you read it and you wonder Really? Well, I guess we would. Right. <laughs> we right. Like think that, we would. You're That's right, Patty. Thing. That is the fundamental mistake. And you you hear it, you hear it from people right now, in the midst of, of of Russia falling on Ukraine like this. That you 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 hear it in their voices all the time. Well, this is 2022. This doesn't happen now. This is 2022. No, this doesn't happen. That's That kind of stuff's all in the past. But it does happen. See, it does happen. It does happen because, you know, malevolence stalks the planet. It's just the truth. And power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, and just all those things that, you know, you might think were of the past, they're not. And, and sadly, they will be with us until Jesus returns, until the kingdom is fully consummated and manifested in peace and righteousness across, across the land. But, yeah, so here, sure, the, 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 the people are, are all caught up in their abilities and what they can do in verses 11 and 12, but do, are they turning back to God? No, they're not turning back to God. So, you know, they're going to have to live out the consequences 
of their, as as Ezekiel puts it, you know, their evil acts are going to be turned back upon their own heads. So, anyway, okay. So I think I'll invite Miss Patty to come around. Alrighty, be right there. I have a prayer request today. Yeah, Bob Kerr says history repeats itself because people never learn from it. Because our problem is not a lack of knowing. It's a problem of the heart. It's a problem of the will. It's just like dieting. I know how to lose weight and get in shape. But that doesn't mean I'll do it. <laughs> <laughs> so Bob's 100% right. I don't know why he always has to pick the diet and exercise. <laughs> I don't. It's just something most of us can, a lot of us can well, identify yeah, with. Yeah, we do. You know? We right. do. Right. We, we sure do. And, um, <laughs> you know, um, I don't know. We're, we're, we're just going to pray. We, we, we do pray. You and I pray, and we pray with this group all the time for God's wisdom and um, just helping us make good choices that hopefully down the road we won't be in these situations, you know? Um, well, right. I know people are people, but... We, but God's wisdom would say, well, yeah. we need a rescuer, and well, we, we have oh, one. absolutely. And yeah. we'll, we're going to be in this already not yet until Jesus comes back. Yep. So anyway. All righty. So thank you guys for all joining us today. Um, still beautiful, sunshiny afternoon this afternoon. So um, we appreciate you all being here. and. Let's just close in prayer. I do have one prayer request, and that was from Jamie Lee, and this is for her husband, Tommy. He has surgery this Thursday, and she's asking us to please pray for him. Um, this is going to be surgery to hopefully remedy his chronic diverticulitis, and I can only imagine that that is really painful. And um, so we're going to pray for his surgeons and the aftercare that he gets and um, also that there'll just be no complications and he'll heal quickly and, um, you know, just be on the road to recovery. And hopefully this will this will be a, truly a thing in his past that it will not come back again. Um, I've known a number of people who have had bad diverticulitis and it's it's a funny name, but it's not a funny condition at nope. all, at all. So let's. Let's pray for Tommy and just pray for us and, and this world. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. And we thank you, God, for this opportunity where we still have the freedom to talk about your word, to share your word, to get taught your word by Scott or others. And we are so grateful for that, Lord. This is one of those times where we can look around the world and see this is, this is not true for everybody. It's not and we just thank you, God, for the freedoms that you have given us and this absolutely wonderful place where you have blessed us to be. We pray, God, today for all of those that are involved right now, millions upon millions of people in Eastern Europe. We pray, God, for the Ukrainian people. We pray, God, for those that have been absolutely just picked up and having to move hundreds maybe in the end thousands of miles away from what they called home. We pray, God, for your healing hand, God, on those who have been injured, those who are hurt right now. We pray, God, for also the people of Poland who have had um, just the biggest open hearts and open arms to take in millions of refugees. 
We pray, God, that the world will continue to be generous in helping, helping any way that we can. At this time, you know, our hands are so tied. There's so few things even big countries can do without escalating this problem. So we do pray, God, for your wisdom and your discernment for us in our lives, but Lord, definitely for those that are in command, those of that are countries, the leaders, the presidents, prime ministers, all those that have a stake in this, how the outcome of this will be. We also pray, God, for the Russian people, many of which are completely naive to what is actually happening. We love you, Lord. We pray for your healing again, Lord, throughout the world. We pray, God, that you would hold us close and bring us back together either tomorrow, God, or in the next few days to study your word. And it's in the name of your son, Jesus, the Redeemer, that we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, everybody. Bye, friends. Adios. See you maybe tomorrow at 12 noon. Gospel of John right here. <laughs> That's it. Bye-bye.